Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at emanuelbirmingham.com. Okay, you guys ready to pray? All right. Well, Father, thank you so much for bringing this, uh, this group here together this morning to think deeply about the things that you care about, God. And I pray and ask for your blessing as I try to communicate clearly and, um, and say right and true things. Um, would we take what we learned today and um, continue to think about it, but also try to um, enact it in our lives, in conversations, in our politics, in um, every relevant facet, so that truly you would have lordship over all of our lives. We are grateful for your great love for us and that we get to stand here today. And so, Lord, um, we just dedicate the next few minutes to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's another day of the equip class. We are thinking and talking together about abortion um, because we're not afraid of the controversial issues. Um, the Lord is not just Lord over our theology as like separate or distinct from everything else. He's not just Lord over our salvation or our kind of individual lives, but He's Lord over all. There's not a square inch over which He does not claim mine, um, the famous Abraham Kuyper once said, and I think it's right. Last week, I just gave us, uh, which you can see on your sheet, um, sort of a, uh, a brief, brief, brief history of Supreme Court decisions um, that ChatGPT, I think, did help me with. So there you go. Um, <laughs> so put together, because not all of us are familiar with the development of legal doctrine as it relates to human life um, at conception and in the womb. Um, so I'm not going to rehearse that, um, but we are going to pick up on the back of the first page. And uh, we did. We talked a lot about you know, what we should think about life and rights and the rights of the mother, the rights of the fetus or child, the rights of the father. You know, those are some of the questions that we broached last week. And so um, uh, this is the natural uh, starting place when you start with the theological foundation of the Imago Dei being made in the image of God, what's the first theological implication of that doctrine? And it's dignity. And so there's a few different issues under the fact that if we are made in the image of God, then we have inherent dignity. And the first of those is rights, um, but then another, a second, is life. You know, you can talk about a right to life, but just to make them distinct, like life is an inherent um, implication of being made in the image of God. And so naturally then abortion is an issue. Uh, also, if, if you were to skip to the end of the outline, euthanasia and suicide are also topics that are worth thinking deeply about. We're not going to do that today, but that is in the plan. And so, um, so if you're picking up in the outline with me on the back of the first page, um, you know, abortion can be made up or a few different issues or points of discussion. And so the first is the fetus or the baby or the child. And so um, I put those three uh, nouns on there because um, that, is, that, that is a foundational place of debate. Um, and how you uh, describe this life 
already begins to seed ground to a perspective. Does that make sense? Um, and so I'll put all three on there uh, to clue us into that. So just a few facts to start with. And by facts, I mean this is not from a Christian perspective. Um, it's just these are facts. And so we as Christians should embrace them. But really everyone, no matter on the ideological spectrum, should say, yes, that's true. Um, so facts, a fetus is a biological human life. Um, now, we could parse a lot of hairs about that, you know, split a lot of hairs, um, but, um, you know, just at a fundamental DNA level, a fetus is a human life. It's not a dog life. It's not a, you know, raccoon life. It's not a, you know, a, uh, you know whatever. It's a human life. Um, and there is no biological, scientifical, that's not a word, uh, but it is today, uh, dispute about that. It's a human life. That's the kind of life that it is, and it is alive. Um, second, the uh, Bible does not employ modern semantic distinctions, like word distinctions, with reference to the status of human life. So, i.e., we today talk about fetus or zygote or person or, you know, uh, all kinds of things uh, to try to describe or make distinctions about this thing or this life in a mother's womb. But the Bible doesn't have all of that language. It, you know, it's obviously written way before the, those were ever debates. And so that's important as we try to think about the extent to which we can push the Bible to say something, maybe even politically, that we're trying to say today, um, that it's working in some different categories with different presuppositions than what we have today. Does that make sense? And so we have to kind of come about the issue from a different set of questions to arrive at any meaningful answers for us today. Does that make sense? Right? Yes? Okay, so I'm just trying not to like force categories back onto the Bible that you can't really find there. I want to go to the Bible and then build from there meaningful categories that we can think about today as it applies to contemporary discussions. So that should be our goal. And so, third, life of all kinds is precious, and some is sacred in the sight of God. So, just from a Bible perspective, life is important to God. He is the author and giver of life. Life of all kinds in the Bible is precious. This is important. So, you know, before you go and step on that little bug in your house that shouldn't be there, there should be just a little twinkling of like, I'm about to literally snuff out a life, you know? Um, and we have that ability, that authority, as the um, stewards of this creation we've briefly talked about. But it shouldn't be a flippant thing. You know, it shouldn't be like, oh, yeah, no big deal. Like, that is an actual life that God has made. Um, all life is precious. And yet, in the Bible, to distinguish us from something like PETA, um, <laughs> uh, human life is sacred. Human life is sacred because we are made in the image of God. So our life actually communicates something about the nature and the value of the almighty creator, whereas that little ant or cockroach in your house does not. Make sense? Um, so questions then. So those are facts. Questions. How then does the Bible talk about people at the earliest stages of development? All right, so that's a question I want to ask the Bible. 
And so Psalm 139, verses 13 through 14, and then verses 15 and 16. For you formed my inward parts, you, and then you can see in yellow, knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So, again, this doesn't get us to, like, when does life begin? You know, at conception, or is it some later point, which is kind of beside the point. But it does put us in the universe, in the basic time frame, like inside of, a, of another person. There is this life that's being woven and knitted together. And because I'm a bit of a, a geek or a dork or whatever, and I love Marvel movies, um, I think about... Uh, the uh, Avengers Age of Ultron when, um, so some of you are with me, I've already lost some of you, um, but, uh, but Vision, this, um, this, you know, he becomes a superhero, but he was supposed to be the body for this evil robot guy. Uh, he's being built inside this tank, and I think at one point you're able to kind of see inside, and it's like all these little lasers just like literally just piecing, weaving him together. And, uh, you know, that's a little bit in my mind, you know, the, the imagery that I think that's being invoked here is like this master intricate weaver craftsman is weaving together a person inside of a mother's womb. And um, they're not yet complete and they're not yet fully what they will be, but yet they are, they are, as in the state of being, they are. They are human. They are David here in this case, um, who has personhood already, agency. And in fact, from a theological perspective, David's, um, his, the, the span of his life and all that he would do and all that he would become for the good, the bad, and the ugly has already been seen by God. And so there's, in my mind, some significance to that. That whatever you want to say about the capabilities and the agency of this, this life that's being woven currently, um, that God in His mind already has the days ordained and numbered, has actions and agency and freedom planned, which is a little bit of an ironic and oxymoron, um, that's no small thing. I think that says something in and of itself about the status that we should uh, attribute to this life. Okay? Uh, you have Job 31.15. Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? And so just yet again, uh, another affirmation of in this location, there is this life that is being made and put together um, and being fashioned. And again, if God is the one who is the fashioner, which notice like the woman is somewhat taken out. The woman is there. She's provided the womb. But the, the person doing the action here is fundamentally seen as God. And so if God is the doer, I don't want to be the undoer. I mean, so that's a by implication argument, okay? Um, second question is, what theologically are humans? So then if you go to the second page, 
we, this is review. We've already seen this and said this, but I just want to remind us uh, that humans are, and this is what I say, the image of God is declared by God's command and marked by our potential. Okay, so um, let us make man in our image. The let us is, um, I'm going to take that as a, um, like a, an imperative. In, uh, and I haven't, I need to step back and actually just confirm this, but oftentimes, um, whether it's explicitly in the imperative mood in the grammar, or if it's, even if it's not, it can be taken as that um, by its meaning. But it comes across to me as like an imperative. Let us, let us do this. So we're made by His command, as He commanded Himself, the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. Uh, and it is marked by our potential. This is a declaration and command which is spoken over the creation of every human. It is a fact about what a person is. It is an essence it is a status. Ultimately, this is referred to as the ontological view, which essentially identifies the image of God with what we are, not what we can do. So whether you are a very, very small baby who hasn't even formed, you know, all of your parts and arms and blah, 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 and therefore can't maybe, you know, shake your arm around, or maybe you can't even feel pain yet, or you're a person who is, you know, 101 years old, and you've, you know, ceased to have all of your abilities to, you know, think reasonably or rationally because of whatever. It's not about what you can do. We can't just snuff out your life because you're no longer of use anymore. If you remember, um, well, some of us are millennials in here, and so we would have read The Giver in like the eighth grade or something like that, which I recommend rereading again because it's really good. It's actually a trilogy. Um, and so a few years back, I read the whole trilogy, and, and The Giver is still the best of the trilogy, but it's really good nonetheless. Um, and in The Giver, uh, you have this utopian society that is somewhat modeled after Plato's Republic, and you have it stratified uh, where everyone is kind of put into a role, and, um, and they're put into a family. So you start out being birthed by um, a mother who is a birth mother for just producing children. And that's all she does. She doesn't keep the children. Her role in society is just to make babies. And then those babies get placed into a home of two parents who were matched together, who did not choose to be together, who were matched together. And those parents have no physical relations with one another. Their sole job is to oversee your development until such time as you reach an age that you can then be put into a career track. Does that make sense? And then in those career tracks, you have more higher status jobs and lower and then kind of middle or whatever. Well, um, if there ends up being some kind of defect in a child after they're born, then that child is just taken essentially to an incinerator and just disposed of. Um, or if something happens later on in life, if someone gets hurt uh, it, performing their functions, um, you know, their arm gets cut off or whatever, then they just disappear one day from the community. Uh, this, is, this is not the vision of man that we can reasonably subscribe to, where if you lose your function or your value to society, we can just dismiss you. And that doesn't matter whether you are at the end of life or at the beginning of life. Because your value is never placed in the Christian tradition within what you can do, but what you are. 
and so um, all image bearers are filled with the same basic potential to resemble, represent, and respond. But the fall hinders these to different degrees in every person. But nonetheless, the gift of potentiality is what marks us out as the kind of being that we are. So someone with Down syndrome does not have the same capabilities in life that someone without Down syndrome has. And then the question is, well, then can we just, you know, genetically scan for that and then find out that they, uh, that they have that and then just abort them from the beginning? I, I don't think that, I don't think the Christian tradition allows for that view of personhood. It's just that the, the fall affected them in a way that it hasn't affected thousands of other people, millions of other people. Um, but no less, he or she is still recognizably a person who has basic, inherently, the same potential, except sin has distorted it. Just like sin has distorted you and I in other ways, limiting our potential in other ways. Does that make sense? Okay, so third question then. How does the Bible understand the value or seriousness of life? So Leviticus 17, 14. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So um, Leviticus, Moses, who wrote Leviticus, is locating um, the life of, of a creature in the blood. So you spill the blood and it's recognition that enough blood loss takes life loss. And that's, that's even in degrees. You lose too much blood, you become weak. The, the life of you, the light of your eyes starts to go dim and go out. Does that make sense? Um, and then obviously the ultimate end of that is all of your blood, all of your life. Um, Proverbs 12.10 Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. So again, life is valued, no matter what kind of life. Genesis 9.6 Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed for God, for, the, another word to translate is because, so there's a causality relationship here, because God made man in his own image. So the life of a beast, well, that's important. But the life of a man is sacred because it is made in God's image. Next question. Is all death view, uh, I might have messed this up, is all death viewed the same? Yes, should be a uh, past tense. Um, viewed the same in the Bible. All right, so that's a, the, the question here is, um, are there different kinds of death? Like murder or unintentional killing? Um, accidental like you get hit by someone's oxen or something like that, um, or a house falls on you. I mean, are, is there any kind of distinction? All right, so there is a distinction between manslaughter and intentional murder. So manslaughter, Numbers fifteen twenty nine, You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. So... There's kind of one degree of killing that applies to the person who does something unintentionally. And if you were to go back to that passage and read it in full, you kind of see that spelled out. But then there's also murder. So Numbers 15.30, but the person who does anything with a high hand, so that's intentional. Like, I think if you grew up like in the South and kind of backwoods South like I did, it's like I can just see my grandmother like 
boy, like, you know, raising that hand, like, you, you better watch yourself. Uh, my grandmother would make me go out and pick a switch from the bush outside and then switch me with it, which is like psychological warfare all, you know, from the outset. And then from there, like, just, you know, ooh. She only had to, actually, she only, she only had to make me do that a couple times as a little kid, and then that was it. And I was like this really good kid. Um, so I'm grateful to this day for my grandmother. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so the high hand there is like, don't you raise a hand. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, um, where was I? Okay, yeah, but the person who does anything with a high hand, with a grandmother hand, whether he is native or sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Why does he revile the Lord? Based on what we've just said, well, that little phrase, the person who with the high hand, he reviles the Lord. Why? He's intentionally snuff out an image bearer of God. Exactly. He's intentionally trying to snuff out an image bearer of God, which is an offense against, not primarily against that person, actually. It's an offense against God. And only secondarily against people, which is I love because it just const, the Bible's constantly trying to reorient us away from making us the center of the universe, us the center of the world, to God's the center of the universe, and God is the center of the world. And so much of this debate, um, you know, that we have in the church and outside of the church, fundamentally comes down to the perspective that we are looking from. If God is the center then we have a lot harder time in this discussion making, um, making room for ending life for any reason. Now, I'm not saying there's not sufficient reasons to do it, but I'm saying we have a lot harder time doing that. But if we're the center, that changes the nature of the debate fundamentally. Make sense? Okay, um, Deuteronomy 15, 17, you shall not murder. Um, and then, uh, let's see... This quote comes from John Piper. It's kind of a long one. Um, talking about this command in the Ten Commandments, he says, I'm aware that some killing is endorsed in the Bible. The word for kill in Exodus 20:13, um, which is, uh, which is the, the commandment not to murder in the Ten Commandments, but in Exodus, not in Deuteronomy, um, is the Hebrew rahaz. It is used 43 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. It always means violent personal killing that is actually murder or is accused as murder. It is never used of killing in war or, with one possible exception, Numbers 3527, of killing in judicial execution. Rather, a clear distinction is preserved between legal putting to death and illegal murder. For example... Numbers 35.19 says, The murderer shall certainly be put to death. That's John Piper, the, the JP translation. Um, the word murderer comes from rahaz, which is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. The word put to death is a general word that can describe legal executions. When the Bible speaks of killing that is justifiable, it generally has in mind God's sharing some of His rights, because He has rights, he fundamentally has rights. Any rights that we have are derivative of his rights. Uh, sharing of his rights with the civil authority. When the state acts in its capacity as God's ordained preserver of justice and peace, it has the right to, quote, bear the sword, end quote, as Romans 13, 1-7 teaches. 
This right of the state is always to be exercised to punish evil, never to attack the innocent, Romans 13.4. The death of a human life in the womb seems to have negative connotation in the Bible. So Amos 1.13, all right, that's our kind of our last thing about the distinctions of different kinds of death. Amos 1.13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will, not revoke the, uh, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So obviously the, the topic is not abortion, but by implication, they're, being, they're, they're facing the judgment of God because in an effort to expand their borders, they're using these cruel and inhumane tactics by ripping open the wombs of these mothers. And I don't think it's primarily and only just an offense against the mother. I think that's definitely at play. But I think there's something more, and it is what we just saw. It's an offense against the Lord. It's a transgression of the image of God in this life. Um, next uh, question. Are there any verses suggesting that an unborn child is a person? So Luke um, 141 and 44, John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Um, that sounds like what a person would do <laughs> to me. Now the question is, you know, um, again, so if we, by asking this question, we are starting to move closer to modern day questions that are not inherent in the Bible. So at, at some point, John could not have leaped for joy, you know, in Elizabeth's womb. Um, but it is significant that there is a period in which he could leap for joy. And so for certain law, uh, certain law, abortion laws um, that would allow abortion up to a certain number of weeks, that would essentially be stamping out the life that could otherwise be leaping for joy, as it were, um, which we're seeing more of now with thanks to 4D imaging um, and sonograms. Um, you know, is that what they're called? Sonograms? What's the word? Ultrasound. Ultrasound. We'll just call it ultrasound. Yeah, that's right. Um, we have a lot more, uh, in, you know, um, we have a lot better perspective of what's actually going on in the womb than we've ever had. Um, Psalm 51, 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So, this sounds like a person who was brought forth in iniquity uh, and was conceived. Um, Genesis 25, 22 to 23, Jacob and Esau, The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Uh, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And then lastly, Psalm 139, 13 through 15, David says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. And when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, um, so I'd started to put some stuff here about the mother. I didn't get as far as I wanted, so let me just stop there. I'm going to read here in a moment uh, from this resource um, on Christian ethics. It's just kind of an introduction to Christian ethics that uh, might kind of give 
some things to think about from the mother's perspective. So let me just read that straight out of this book. And then I'd love to then end our time with a little bit of discussion based on what we've looked at, okay? All right, so um, from um, Samuel Wells and Ben Quash's Introducing Christian Ethics, um, they, uh, they put in different perspectives on different ethical questions. And so here's a perspective kind of about the state of the mother or the mother's perspective. And they say, there are four strands in relation to the mother, all of which tend to put the mother's perspective and rights in conflict with those of the fetus. Only the last of them is truly deontological approach. Okay, so first, extreme circumstances of conception. Many who take a firm deontological stand against abortion, so deontological would be commands, like whatever you know the Bible commands, we're going to do. So it's kind of a command theory of uh, ethics. Clear, simple, straightforward. So many who take a firm deontological stand against abortion would make exceptions in cases where conception has arisen after rape or incest. The argument is that it is unreasonable to expect a woman to bear in her body the result of her violation unless she expresses a clear willingness, perhaps a vocation, to do so. It has the force of a deontological argument, but it is largely a consequential argument grounded in the psychological well-being of the mother. So consequential means because of these consequences from this bad actor, um, then uh, you know, we should make an allowance because of the psychological effect on the mother. Uh, second, disability. Again, many would make an exception on behalf of parents who find that find they are expecting a child with multiple or complex patterns of disability. This is sometimes defended as being a decision made on behalf of the child rather than the parents, though this is hard to argue conclusively. It appears to be deontological argument, but like the previous argument, it is largely put forward in consequential terms of the resources and disruption to life such as such a birth would bring about. Disability adv advocacy groups are among those highly skeptical of such reasoning. Third, every child um, a wanted child. The theory here is that no child should come into the world unless it is wanted and likely to be cherished by its parents. Adoption is ruled out as, a require, as requiring unreasonable commitment from the birth mother and offering unsatisfactory psychological, psychological security to the child. Yet again, this seems to be a deontological argument, but is in fact a consequential argument hinging on the psychological well-being of the child. And then finally, a woman's body. This is the only genuine deontological argument of the four. It maintains that a woman has complete rights over her own body and that she should be able to have an abortion at any stage she sees fit. Advocates often point out that women who take such a step invariably do so with great reluctance. But the principle is that others, usually men, should no longer have the right to dominate the process of reproduction and the social roles that result. Civil law does not, in fact, recognize anyone's complete rights over their own body, hence seatbelt legislation, for instance. Nonetheless, abortion becomes an explosive social issue when this deontological rights argument runs up against the deontological arguments made on behalf of the fetus. In the context of prospective legislation, particularly when churches uh, or pressure groups have made the issue a litmus test of faithfulness or identity. All right. Thoughts, reactions. We have about 
five to 10 minutes maybe if we stretch it, if you don't have kids waiting for you. I'm Grandpa. Hey, Grandpa. David and Jacob. <laughs> Father uh, and, I, and I appreciate everything that you presented. And, uh, what one thing that stands out to me is that 139th Psalm in that 16th verse. It says, "In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them." Mm-hmm. And, and Jeremiah alludes to that in his first chapter when he says, before I formed you in the womb, mm. I knew you. Mm-hmm. So life uh, is sacred because it begins in the mind of God. Yes, yes. And just as Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Yeah. Sanctifying the institution of marriage. Yes, sir. How valuable that is to God. So yeah. Same thing with, with life. Yeah, yeah. Being a gift of God. But I do think it's important to realize that God understands we're broken. Yes. And He does provide forgiveness. Mm. He provides it for uh, if, if we have committed yeah. abortion, if we've committed divorce. Mm-hmm. For everything we've done, He provides re- restoration mm. and forgiveness from all of that, just mm-hmm. as He did for David. Yeah, in his Psalm 51. Adultery and his murder of Bathsheba's husband, yep. Uriah. Yep. So we can be thankful for that and embrace that as well. Amen, amen, amen. And I love what you said. It, you know, in some sense, life begins in the mind of God. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Um, that is uh, that is deeply theological. So as Christians, that you know, the Bible has to be our starting place. And when we read statements like that, it has massive implications, not just for that particular person that God was talking to in Jeremiah or David, but for all people everywhere throughout history and time. So that's really helpful. Thank you, Byron. Yes. But didn't the lives of all those women and children and infants that God commanded Israel to slaughter in 1 Samuel 15 that we talked about last week, didn't those lives also begin in the mind of God? Yes, they did. And I is not is is not is not God somehow being borderline schizophrenic by saying slaughter all these children and, and, and infants? Thoughts before I give any? I'm I'm trained and paid to you know think about these things, but just what do you think? Well, that's, that was all part of the conquest of Canaan. It was <laughs> all part of the conquest of Canaan, and I mean, God also commanded. Not, not leaving any cattle alive, like completely destruct, complete destruction mm-hmm. of all things. Um, and part of that was, you know, the victory was God's, not Israel's. God provided the victory, and He provided their livelihood thereafter. Um, there's the, one of the constant refrains throughout. Um, Joshua and and Samuel and all those, those texts is that you know complete destruction for all things so that you may not say look look what I've gained mm. look look what my strong hand has made mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and, um, and inevitably when Israel did not devote those things to destruction it just consequently led to idolatry it did. yes and, right and, and God knew that 
and so in that unique period it was you know complete destruction for all things because you know right now in this current covenant if you don't devote this to destruction you're going to abandon the covenant that we we have mm -hmm. and then there's going to be consequences mm -hmm. and like you know you will have blessing unless you disobey mm. you'll have curses mm -hmm. you know and um you know that i think that's unique for that time period that does not apply today um yeah, that's kind of yeah, yeah. It doesn't quite get us out of the pickle, but it definitely gives us more context to what was going on in that part of Scripture in time. Um, but yeah, I mean, what do you say to Art, who rightly recognizes that God ordered the, you know, extermination of an entire people group essentially if we're going to be crass about it? Which and to say things is. And that's not I mean, the only time. Yeah. The flood, flood is a better yeah. example. <laughs> the flood is a better example. God told us to destroy everything. Seems like it seems like a very convenient out, kind of like. Yeah. Well, you know that no one's going to want this kid, so therefore. It's yeah. Not yeah. Living and yeah. Living <laughs> oh man. Um. Okay. Uh, I think the the most straightforward and simple answer is that. God is the giver of life, and in every instance, He is also the taker of life. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a reasonable argument to say, well, He can't take life at this point, but it's okay for Him to take it at another point. Let Him live 80 years, and, and then, okay, like, they can die some randomly horrible death. That's fine, because it was about their time. But no, that, you know, don't cut their life short. No, God is the author and taker of life. He decides the length of our days. And ultimately, you know, there is, we are eternal souls. So we put a lot of stock into like the ending of our temporal material life here, but we live on. Now, some people will live on unto eternal death, unfortunately, and then some will live on unto eternal life. Um, but, you know, God, we are His creation. We don't, we don't have rights over one another. Because we are not the maker of one another. Remember we saw that looking at John Locke a few couple weeks ago and, and how that's the basis of really civil government, um, that we are all equally free and have no rights over one another because we are all made under the one sovereign Lord and Master. And so as His creation, He has all the rights and He gets to determine what to do with His creation and when to do it. Now, we can go a little bit deeper, which we don't have time for, to look at some other ethical questions about why it was also right for him to take the lives of an entire people, because um, there's biblical rationale for that time period in history. But I think we need, we need not go any further. We don't have to go any further than just a recognition that he is the one who is the creator and sustainer and ender of life. And he has that prerogative to do with us what he wills. Um, so, yeah, but if that was something that's still burning on your heart and you're like, oh, I, I need more resolve, then let's talk about it next week, maybe. Um, any other kind of reactions or responses to, to this week? Now, I, I, for me personally, I don't, I don't feel any um, unrest in like, how I feel and what I believe about <clears throat> any of this. My bigger, my bigger struggle or burden is how do you... Um, interact and connect with people who don't believe that. Yeah. You know, who, you know, you can make all the biblical arguments you want. That's right. Like, 
Well, that's your interpretation. Or yep. I don't believe the Bible. That's right. You know, so like then what? Yeah. You know, and it's not up to me to coerce or convince anybody. I mean, because it's, it's the spirit that convicts. It's the spirit that changes hearts mm-hmm. and by grace uses us as that agent to do so. Um, yeah, right. But at the same time, there is this, like, sense of failure, like, when we get to that part of the conversation. And I think that, for me, it's it's more of like, it's kind of this dormant, typical male hero complex that's just there. Yeah. You know, and then it's um, to like how to how to cope with that and how to like walk away from the conversation. It's okay to feel burden. It's good to it's right to feel burden as right. an individual. Yeah. Um but at the same time like what then? Like how to, how do we move the conversation forward from that? Can we move the conversation forward? Yeah, that's good. Well, just one final thought then is, you know, by God's grace, you know, this last year, we saw something that we didn't think was possible. Um, Most people, most lawyers who have been fighting for Roe v. Wade and other um, similar decisions, related decisions to be overturned, thought that, you know, with this new kind of setup on the Supreme Court, we would have little incremental victories toward finally overturning it, and it all happened kind of in one moment, and the right to determine um, whether abortion should be legal and at what, you know, period in gestation has been returned to each state, which, um, you know, we'd like to see it just banned overall, but this is a definite improvement, and so, you know, for the next 50-ish years, you know, I think that we can, you know, be grateful, but the next step is really... How are we truly a pro-life movement from, you know, the womb to the tomb? How are we making it so that, you know, women who find themselves in unbelievably difficult situations don't feel like their only reasonable alternative is to a back alley abortion or whatever? How do we, like, pave a way, a vision for women who think they can't, for whatever reason, support the, the life inside of them to say that there is a better way? whether that's adoption or, you know, whatever it might be. You know, like we need to be the people who champion life of the, of the child and of the mother so that there should never be a thought 50 years from now when uh, the court maybe changes dynamics that, oh, yeah, like we need to bring this abortion thing back. You know, like it should be like, oh, actually, this has been working pretty well because of the way Christians have stepped up, like in the beginning, like in the early church. <laughs> when they were t- plucking babies off the street that were left for dead and saving them, like that's the kind of people that we should be. We shouldn't, if we can't be that individually and as churches and then as the church in America, um, then we are as much culpable for the lives of those child children who are and will be aborted as the people doing it. Um, that might be a strong statement, um, but I felt it in the moment, so I said it. So um, let me pray for us, and uh, and then we can go to to worship. Um, Father, thank you for the clarity that your word brings to this topic. I pray for those maybe even in this room whose hearts are struggling to embrace it fully because of maybe still lingering questions or past experiences or maybe even maybe even experience with abortion themselves. God, would you make your word a delight to our hearts and help us to be champions of life that you have made precious and valuable. 
And um, would we always speak a better word on this topic than those who would um, seek to end life, God? And um, as we go to worship now, would your greatness just be made manifest before us? And would we fall at your feet proverbially and worship um, out of love and adoration? And would you receive all of our honor and all of our praise, God, because you are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.